0: Good morning, New City Church. How's everybody doing this morning? Doing well? Yeah? Good. My name's Ryan, and I'm one of the pastors here. So glad to be with you this morning. Um, And for those of you joining us online at our other campuses, welcome. We're glad that you're with us, too. It is the second best Sunday of the year not because it's Palm Sunday, because it's Master Sunday. So I know that our, our early services are fuller today because the broadcast has been moved up and we all wait for the time, oh, it's the best phrase of the year. Hello, friends, right, as Jim Nance welcomes us to Sunday at the Masters. So um, if anybody tells me anything this morning about what's going on, um, I'm going to send your name to the elders and we're going to practice church discipline on you. So please um, keep, keep it from me. Don't let me know. Um, but it's Palm Sunday and we're heading into Holy Week. This week that we look back at the last days of the life of Jesus Christ. This week that as his people, we remember not only who he is, but what he has done for us. And can I just encourage us? Not to let this week fly by. We, we, we roll through life at such a rapid pace that often we forget to just slow down, take a time out, hit the pause button, and reflect. And there's something about our culture that lives in 20 or 30 second sound bites, and we're just not very good at being reflective. We're just not very good at slowing down. Can we just slow down this week? And as we maybe. Start this moment, this could be a starting point for just a week of reflection, a week of contemplation, a week of entering in with Jesus to all that he did and all that he accomplished for us in His work on the cross and in His resurrection from the dead. I guarantee you, come back next Sunday. It is my favorite Sunday of the year. It is the best day ever that we celebrate, the best day in human history, Jesus Christ risen from the dead. We're going to have bacon at my campus. So I don't know what you're going to do at your campuses, but at my campus, we've ordered at least 400 pieces of bacon. So um, it's a day to celebrate. That's all I'm saying. We're going to celebrate and we're going to blow the roof off of All of our campuses celebrating the best thing that this world has ever seen and ever known. But this week we look at Jesus' triumphal entry in Matthew chapter 21. So if you have a Bible, turn there. uh, Matthew chapter 21. We'll be in the first 11 verses. And here's the big idea this morning. Identifying with Jesus in his triumph. Right? We call this... This scene, the triumphal entry. Identifying with Jesus in his triumph as we see it here in Scripture, it means that first we have to identify with him in both his humility and his death. Identifying with Jesus in his triumph means that we have to identify with him in both his humility and his death. This week I had the opportunity to read some sermons uh, from an early church father named Cyril of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And he was writing to people who were going to be baptized. In the early church, uh, he wrote and in, in, in lived in the 4th century. In the early church, um, most people were baptized on Easter Sunday. And candidates would go through a very serious time of preparation for their baptism. Now, we don't want to do everything like they did it. But it's fascinating to read what Cyril writes to these people as they're entering in to baptism. And baptism, as we understand it, is... As, a, as an outward picture of what's already an internal reality, but it's an identification publicly with the death of Jesus and the newness of life that he's raised us into. Listen to what Cyril says about baptism. He says, In one and the same action, you died and were born. The water of salvation became both tomb and mother for you. What Solomon said of others is apposite to you. On that occasion, he said, and he's quoting Ecclesiastes. There's a time to be born. There's a time to die. But the opposite is true in your case. There's a time to die. And a time to be born. And a single moment achieves both ends. And your begetting was simultaneous with your death. If we're going to identify with Jesus' triumph, we've got to identify with his humility and his death. Let's identify with his humility. Let's look At this passage, we'll start in verse 1. But just to set the scene, it's the very beginning of the Passover. And during the Passover, um, about 180,000 people would come from all over the Roman world, most of them Jews, into Jerusalem. The population of Jerusalem at this time is estimated to be about 30,000. So Charlotte proper, 850,000 or so people live in Charlotte proper. That would be like 5 million people coming to town to hang out for an entire week. It's a party. And during the day, everybody goes down into the temple courts. There was this big section of the temple called the Court of the Gentiles on the outer courts of the temple. And it could, it could fill all of these people. They could fit in there. It was, a, it was a massive complex, the temple was. And during at night, they would camp outside the city because there, there aren't enough rooms in Jerusalem for 180,000 people. So all these people would come into Jerusalem. And if you remember some of the Psalms, they're Psalms of Ascent and Psalms of Descent. And as people are coming in for these different festivals, they would sing these songs. And they're coming in on just a few of these great Roman roads that were available to them to enter into the city on. And so you got to figure that as people start come, trickling down from the north, more and more people join them from these little towns and little villages. And eventually it's like a big procession of people coming For what's the most important festival to them of the year, Passover. And so it's a very exciting time. It's a lot of fun. You get a week off. You get to go celebrate um, your God and who he is and what he's done. And you get to be with your people. It's a great occasion. And as they're going into Jerusalem, Jesus is going down as well. He's going down from Galilee. He's going down and, and making about a hundred mile trek down into Jerusalem, into the city for Passover. And as he gets closer to the city, they've been walking almost 100 miles from Caesarea Philippi. And as they get close to the city, we read this in verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. So Jesus has already prearranged how he's going to enter into Jerusalem. It's a plan. It's intentional. He knows exactly what he's doing and he knows exactly why he's doing it. So he sends his disciples. He says, go go get that donkey and go get her little colt and bring them to me. I'm going to ride into the city on this little colt, on this little baby donkey. And so they go and they get them and it says, Matthew says in kind of his um, typical fashion, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. See, Jesus in Matthew's gospel is the fulfillment of God's plan from beginning to end to send a Messiah, to send a Savior. And then he quotes Zechariah chapter 9, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. Humble, And mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Now that's kind of a clunky translation. He didn't sit on both of the horses like Jesus is like the ultimate cowboy riding into Jerusalem. He was sitting on the colt. The mom was there because most likely this little donkey had never been ridden before, and there were thousands of people heading to Jerusalem that were around for this scene. Most of them were Jesus' followers and they were kind of his entourage as they went into the city. But all these people were going down into Jerusalem with Jesus and if you're a little baby donkey and you've never had anyone ride on you before, that's going to make you freak out. So mom comes along to reassure you. And here comes Jesus riding into the city on this little colt. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. This is a royal coronation. This is a processional. This is the red carpet for Jesus. This is exactly what happened when new kings were crowned and they were coming into the place where they were going to rule. This was something that people were very familiar with. In fact, Zechariah chapter 9, there's echoes of David re-entering Jerusalem in 2 Samuel after Absalom has been, um, his revolt has been stomped out. And David comes back into Jerusalem very humbly. This was a Very familiar story for the people of Israel. And Jesus comes just like King David did humbly back into the city. And he's riding on this colt. And everybody knows that this is him saying, I am your king. I'm your king. I'm the one you've been looking for. I'm the one you've been waiting for. I'm making a very public statement. All throughout the Gospel of Matthew, there's a theme that we see called the messianic secret. Jesus would heal people. Jesus would do something incredible. People would come to him and they would say, I know who you are. And you know what Jesus would say? Shh, it's not my time. It's not my time yet. But here, it appears that The secret is over, and he's ready to let the word out. And in verse 9, it says that the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. What kind of king is this? A normal king would come in on a chariot he'd have it all prearranged, he'd have it all planned out he would make sure everybody was there who needed to be there and that everybody knew they needed to be there to recognize his kingship jesus doesn't do that very humbly he rides in on a donkey and he says i'm the king that you've been waiting for but i'm not the king you've been expecting And there's such humility in the way that Jesus constantly postures and presents himself. And if we're going to identify with this triumph, we've got to identify with his humility. Now, uh, I've heard it said, and this is kind of a popular quote, maybe you've heard this before, that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. And this is the way Jesus lived all of his days on this earth. Jesus lived fully aware of who he was. He was never wavering in his identity and his understanding of his calling, his purpose, and his relationship to God. He didn't need the words of other people to build him up. But he also wasn't a raging narcissist in the way that he presented himself to other people. He was confident in who he was. But in humility, he didn't think less of who he was. But he did think of himself very little. In fact, he put everyone else and their needs often before his own needs in his life and ministry on earth, and even in his work on the cross, to achieve an ultimate end for all of us, which is relationship with God and ultimately, in his triumph, the glory of God. I read an article in Psychology Today, uh, this last week, about um, our culture and how narcissism and narcissistic tendencies are growing at like an exponential rate. And most psychologists, most researchers are correlating this uh, to the rapid growth of social media. I know we talk about social media a lot, but it it, it dominates much of our lives and much of our time uh, in our days on earth. It's a big distraction for a lot of us and it's a big part of, of much of the way that we communicate now with those around us and those who don't live near us. And so, um, narcissism is kind of a—it's kind of a confusing term because um, most of us aren't clinical narcissists in this room. Uh, Most researchers would say that between 0.5 and 1% of the population can be identified as narcissists. The other, you know, 20 or 30% just won't go to a clinician because they don't think they need to. You know, that's—that was a joke. Uh, It's okay. You'll get it later. But, 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 but narcissism and narcissistic tendencies are on the rise uh, in our world. And so um, let's play a little game, shall we? You might be a narcissist, okay? You might be a narcissist if your computer search history reveals that you Google yourself (laughs) often, okay? Uh, You might be a narcissist if you know how many likes your new profile pic got. And you have a notification on your phone that tells you every time you get a new like. You might be a narcissist if you hired a professional photographer for the sole purpose of taking your profile picture on Facebook. You might be a narcissist if your top favorite books, your top five favorite books have the title "Me in them," or your favorite movie is "Me," Myself," and I." Uh, You might be a narcissist if you thank God that he has gifted you as an expert at almost every topic. (laughs) But others just haven't realized it yet. You might be if you feel super defensive right now and are offended by the things that I'm saying. (laughs) You might be a narcissist if you choose a brow lift over buying your children new shoes. You might be if you're personalizing this right now. You might be if you think I'm talking about you right now. And you might be if you flex your biceps every time you pass a mirror. You also might be a teenage boy, okay? <laughs> we have this misunderstanding of humility that it's a, it's a rejection of everything good about us. It's a rejection of our, our true identity and what God says is really very true deep down about us. It, we have a misunderstanding of humility when we don't take into account the fact that we're made in the image of God and our gifts and our strengths and our wiring and our passions, those all are full of dignity. Full of dignity as we're made in the image of God. But you can't identify with Jesus unless you identify with his humility and humility is marked by a secure Identity. It's marked by a secure identity. You know who you are and you know who God says you are. I am who you say I am, God. And I'm going to live in that and I'm going to cling to that and I'm going to hold to that all the days of my life. Um, A few months ago... I don't know if you've ever been through this, and I don't know if you're ever insecure. I, I often struggle with insecurity in my life. A few months ago, I had several uh, relationships, uh, situations that I was working for, and there was kind of a theme, if there was a, a heading over all of it, and the heading was rejection. I was feeling rejected in all of these different places by people, organizations, other things that were, I was interacting with, and... I, I, I got an email and it it was another, you know, it was you are rejected kind of a thing in in, in, in this with this relationship I was in. And I, I have two people that I call when I'm like wigging out and about to lose my mind so I don't lose my mind. And I called my buddy Alan and I said, um, hey listen, I am, I am I am I crazy? Is there something wrong with me? And he said, I, I think in this case there's not anything wrong with you. He goes, but what about that other thing that you're thinking about? What about this? What about this? And uh, just at that very moment, the very thing that we were talking about, I got another email. And I checked my email and it said, no, you've been rejected again and again and again. And I'd been walking through this in life with so many different things. And it was lunchtime. I was sitting in my office at Matthews East. And I I said to Alan, I said, I got to go. I hung up my phone. And I don't know if you ever have this feeling, but like I couldn't breathe. I just couldn't breathe. I was so upset. And this doesn't happen to me. But... Maybe once a year, maybe maybe not even that much. And it was lunchtime, so I just went home. And I went into my study, and I got our little dog out of his crate, and he is, his brain is the size of a peach pit. He's not the smartest thing, but he's very emotionally intelligent. He jumps up in the chair, and he just, he just starts licking. You know when dogs do that, just start licking my face. He's like, as though that's exactly what I wanted and needed, but he was trying to comfort me in that moment. And I just started weeping and I just prayed this simple prayer I said Jesus when are you really gonna be enough for me when are you really gonna be enough for me when are your words gonna be enough for me when's your purpose gonna be enough for me why do I have to live for the praise for the applause for the approval of other people so much in my life when are you gonna be enough And I just sat there and I just cried and I heard the gospel. I heard the gospel so clearly as the Spirit spoke to me and he said, I've always been enough and I will be enough, but you just have to grab a hold of me in a way that you don't. And let me define you in every single circumstance, in the highs and in the rejections of your life. And just know that I'm enough. Jesus always knew who he was. He was rejected again and again and again and again and again. And I'm not saying it didn't hurt. I'm not saying it didn't bother him. It probably did. But he never lost a sense in all of it of who he really was. And so as he rode into Jerusalem, people were were screaming Hosanna in the highest. They were saying, yeah, this is the king. This is the one we've been waiting for. But Jesus knew, yeah, you're saying that now. But in a few days, you're going to be saying, give us Barabbas. We want him. Put this guy on a cross. He knew that everybody, everybody was going to abandon him. And it never changed the way that he understood himself. And so if we want to identify with triumph, we've got to be marked by a secure identity. And that's a mark of humility. Finally, Finally, humility inverts our structures of authority. I I love the scene in Matthew's gospel just before this. uh, The mom of the sons of Zebedee, like any good helicopter parent would do, comes to Jesus and she's like, Jesus, I want my boys to sit at your right and your left in glory. Can you do that for me? And he's like, you don't even know what you're asking me. You don't even know. You don't even know what you're saying. And then he turns to his disciples and he said, Look, guys you know that the rulers and those in authority in our world, they take their power and they lord it over you. They lord it over you, but not so with you. If you want to become great in the economy of my kingdom, you've got to be the lowest one. If you want to be the the most prominent, then you're going to have to be the servant of all. I didn't come to be served, but to serve. And I came to give my life as a ransom for many. Humility inverts our structures of authority. And it changes the paradigm. It flips the script. You may have power at work, but God didn't give you that power so that you could lord it over people. He gave you that position. He gave you that power. He gave you that authority so that you could serve. So that you could lift other people up. So that you could bring renewal to your workplace. He may have given you leadership over a family, but he didn't give you leadership over that family so you could make the decisions and tell everybody how it was going to be. He gave you leadership over your family so that you could lay your life down for them so that God could make much of himself in their lives in the way that they understood themselves in this world. So that in everything that you were doing, you'd be thinking of their good, not your own. That's why God has put us where he's put us. And I know many people on our campuses, many people... Um, in our church, we're we're living in places where God has placed you in, in places of influence and he's put you there for a reason. God put Jesus in a place of influence in his culture. And you know what the purpose was? The purpose was a cross to achieve his ultimate end. So in the kingdom of God, the way up is down. The way to be greatest is to become the least. So, Secondly, we've got to identify with his death. Let's read the last two verses of this passage together. We'll start in verse 10. It says this, as Matthew writes, When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? Now Jesus had a crowd with him and they were affirming who he was. But Jerusalem, when they heard about what was going on, they were freaking out. <laughs> the city was kind of in an uproar and they're like, What is going on? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. We've got to identify with his death. First, death is a decision. In John chapter 10 verse 18, Jesus made this statement. He said, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down. I lay it down. And his triumphal entry is a picture of the fact that no one is going to ultimately take Jesus's life from him. Sure. The Jewish leaders, the Sadducees, and the Romans, they're going to conspire and he's going to be on a cross. And they think they're putting an end to the life of Jesus Christ. But they're not. Jesus Christ, in this moment, is setting his own death trap. He knows what what it's doing. He knows the message he's sending. And he knows how it's going to be received. Death is a decision. And just like it was a decision for Jesus, it has to be for us. It's a conscious choice of obedience. Jesus didn't have to ride into Jerusalem. He knew what was waiting for him there. He made a choice to die, and he knew what the outcome of that would be. Secondly, there's a principle at work here, and it's that life comes from death. Now, it's not apparent to us on the flat reading of the text, but in this text, uh, it's Lamb Selection Day. So as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, it was the day on the lunar calendar that during Passover you would select your lamb for sacrifice during the Passover. The historian Josephus said that um, at one point they counted how many lambs were sacrificed during Passover and they counted about a quarter of a million lambs. So it is, it is a bloody, um, bloody event Um, as Israel looks back to God's redemptive purposes for them in this world. Um, And this was the day that everybody going to the festival would go and they would buy and select their lamb. This comes straight out of Exodus chapter 12, if you want to look later. And the first verses of Exodus chapter 12 is God is giving instructions for the Passover. And on lamb selection day, Jesus rides into Jerusalem. He rides into Jerusalem. Now when they picked out their lamb, uh, the Jews would take it and they would keep it for four days with them. And it kind of became like the family pet. They would hang out with this lamb. They would probably name the lamb. And they would inspect the lamb for four days to make sure that it was an acceptable offering to God for their sin. They would... They would make sure that it was a lamb. It was to be one-year-old, a male, without blemish or defect. And so Jesus is entering in on Lamb Selection Day. You think that Jesus does anything on accident? Heck no. Jesus doesn't do a single thing in his life or his ministry on accident. And he rides down into Jerusalem. And he goes straight to his father's house. And he spends the rest of his time for the most part of Passover, just like everyone else would there, So that he can be the lamb that the people can inspect to see if he is in fact indeed an acceptable offering and sacrifice to God. Now the next day John records in his gospel uh, that Jesus is in the temple courts and it says this in John chapter 12. Some Greeks who had come to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration paid a visit to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. They said, sir, we want to meet Jesus. Philip told Andrew about it, and they went together to ask Jesus. So the guys go, and they're like, Hey, Jesus, uh, these Greeks, they'd like to meet you. And then Jesus makes this response, kind of enigmatically, I think, to them, but he replied this way Listen, this is what time it is. Now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Verse 25, those who love their life in this world will lose it. And those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to serve me must follow me, because my servants must be where I am. And the Father will honor anyone who serves me. Now my soul is deeply troubled. Should I pray, Father? Save me from this hour. But this is the very reason I came. Father, bring glory to your name. There's a redemptive principle at work here as Jesus enters on Lamb Selection Day, and it's that life in God's economy in a broken world has to come from death. Life comes from death. So Jesus says, I am the kernel of wheat. I'm going to fall into the ground. Literally, I'm going to go into a tomb and I'm going to die and I'm going to produce a harvest of new life. But he was also speaking about us. Unless you want to die, you're not going to know life. And so many of us would rather hold on to being a seed. We would choose to embrace a posture of seediness before God and in this life and we want to hold on to everything, and we just like being a little seed. We have control as a seed. We 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 enjoy, you know, calling the shots and saying how we'd like things to go. And we have this posture, and we're just closed off to the purposes of God, to the life that He would have. There's the potential for us for life, but we want to hold on with all of our might to our seediness, to live in the way that we want to to doing the things that we would rather do, to embracing ourselves and our way and our purposes. And, and even many of us who are good church-going folk are holding on to life. And Jesus says it's very simple, the life of faith. It's very simple. You just fall into the ground like a little seed and you die. And when you do that, you will really begin to experience life. Now it's exhausting to live like this. Um, many of us do it all the time and we're just worn out all the time and we can't figure out why am I so tired? Why are things so hard? Why doesn't this work, God? What are you doing? You don't care about me. But what we don't see is that our, our posture, our whole way of life is really closed off to God and his purposes and we're, we're just like a little seed and we're, we're all kind of contained within. And what God is saying is, let go of your life. Lose it and die. And then you'll find me. You'll find my purposes. You'll understand who you are. And you'll walk in my ways and you'll start to flourish. Just like I created you two when I put Adam and Eve in the garden. And I laid out a plan for humanity. Walk with me. Come close to me. And die to who you were are and who you were and what you thought your life was going to be and begin to embrace eternal life guys this next week is is a chance to just look at how jesus did that i would highly encourage on all of our campuses for all of us here today uh, us to come thursday to our service at maundy thursday it's a somber it's a sobering service but it is my, one of my favorite church services of the year is we reflect on the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf and we look at those last hours of his life. We need to do that. And in that, we can identify with him. And when we identify with his humility and his death, then we can share in his triumph. So let's spend this week in contemplation. Let's spend this week in prayer. Let's spend this week reading God's word in a different way. And then let's come back here in seven days And let's make this place feel like it's going to explode with our joy. Let's pray. God, all we want, all we want is to know the life that you have for us. Thank you for being a God of grace who continually extends himself, even though we're weak even though we walk away even though we we don't listen to you and obey you in the ways that we should you continually extend yourself to us and we're so grateful for that jesus i i don't know what was in your mind as you entered jerusalem i i don't know if you saw all of our faces i don't i don't know how that worked in the incarnation I, i don't know if you knew every name but i know that you knew all of us before the foundation of the world that you saw us that you loved us that you cared for us and that you came for us you came for us and I just I just pray for myself first and for this church called New City that that would be enough for us that would be enough for us you would be enough for us and the redefining reality of your work on our behalf would really make all things new it's in your name I pray Amen.